Have you wondered whether you should choose a tow vehicle first or an RV first, and then a matching tow vehicle? Are you uncertain of what a trailer hitch, hitch receiver, or hitch pin are? Do you know that most national parks have a limit for how long your rig can be if you're going to camp in their campgrounds? On today's show, I'm answering frequently asked questions from girl campers and hopefully putting your mind at ease about these things and more. Stay tuned. Hello, my name is Janine Pettit and I'm a girl camper. I go places and do things with other adventurous and curious women. We camp like girls in tents, vans, travel trailers, motorhomes, and even cars. We travel solo and in groups to girl camping gatherings, large and small, to bucket list destinations with friends, or on our own to wherever the wind blows us. On this show, we'll talk about the qualities of a girl camper and how you can be a girl camper too. The girl campers are having a party and you're invited. Stay tuned while we share what's happening on the back roads of America the Beautiful. Today's episode is brought to you by our consortium of girl camper friendly RV dealerships. General RV with 12 locations in the U.S., Setzer's World of Camping in Huntington, West Virginia, and Bankston Motorhomes with three locations in Alabama and two in Tennessee. Also providing sponsorship are our friends at Kempco Manufacturing, makers of over 4,000 products for your RV, boat, and tailgating needs. And of course, Liberty Outdoors, manufacturers of the award-winning Max and Mini Max travel trailers. Thank you, Girl Camper Sponsors, for allowing me to bring great RV content to outdoor enthusiasts everywhere. Welcome, I'm Janine Pettit, Girl Camping Ambassador, Blogger, Adventurist, and Podcaster, and this is episode 177 of Girl Camper, the podcast. Before we head into part two of Frequently Asked Questions, we have a message from our friends at Camco Manufacturing. You know, that company that makes all the great things, over 4,000 great things. And one of the things I'm really enjoying is Camco's new Curatec cooler. It is the last cooler you will ever buy. They have redesigned this cooler to be even better. I happen to be at the uh, factory and got to see the whole process. I was there on the day they were dropping it off the roof. It was pretty cool. <laughs> the 37 quart Curatec cooler has thick seamless walls, which means more insulation and longer ice retention. It has a fully sealing gasket that keeps cool air in and hot air out. And that means your ice isn't going to melt as fast. It also has two hinges that are built into the lid to prevent any damage. They snap down really hard and are very easy to open. The Curatec cooler is roto-molded, one-piece cooler. I want to tell you what that means because I thought this was so cool. When you're at the factory, there's this ginormous piece of equipment and shredded plastic is put in it and it's heated and the whole machine turns in all these different directions and it fills up, 
fills up every little corner of that mold and then the whole thing is taken out and so your cooler doesn't have any seams anywhere it's one whole piece it is really neat to see it the fun thing about this cooler now is that they come in your favorite team colors so if you're a bears fan you could get yours in navy blue and orange I've got a pink one and I've also got a gray and white one. They have some really neat dividers that go inside so you can separate your uh, things that you want, like your bottles from your lunch meat. It has all kinds of little attachments that go on it, including a cup holder. So if you were sitting at the beach or if you were on a boat fishing, you could attach your cup holder to it. I am going to attach the video for this because it is really cool to see it. So they have a great YouTube video. It comes in 21, 37, and 58 quart sizes. So thank you, Camco, for just always up in your game. Thank you. Okay, I'm going to jump right in here with our very first question. And that comes from Ginny. Ginny wants to know, can you be a girl camper if you have never camped before? Well, I can't tell you that I ha I don't have enough ways to say yes to this. And I'm so glad to have the opportunity to answer this question because it really is like one of the top frequently asked questions. Um, I got to go back here a bit and share a little story. So when I started the podcast three and a half years ago, I really thought that the listeners would be girl campers. I thought that they would be the people who are already towing and RVing. It really shocked me to discover, and the only way to really discover this is by the mail I get from people, the letters I get from people. I have figured out that about half of our audience are wannabes, and the other half are women who are already out there doing it, but there's so many girl camper wannabes. So over the years, I have dedicated many podcast episodes to the topic of becoming a girl camper. And just a few months ago, I gave these episodes a special spot on the Girl Camper website so that they would be easy to find. So when you go on to girlcamper.com, there's a drop-down box appropriately titled Girl Camper Resources. When you drop down that box, you're going to see a folder that says Becoming a Girl Camper. In that file, you're going to see all of our blog posts and podcasts that address some of the obstacles to girl camping so i'm going to put the link directly in there so you don't have to search around for it within that dropbox you're going to find a few of these things a couple blog posts on i don't have a trailer i don't know how to tow i don't have anyone to fix up a vintage trailer for me these were some of the obstacles that we addressed in the very beginning of the podcast now there are some podcast episodes, um, Becoming a Girl Camper, that was episode 68, Hope for the RVing Widow, that's my fabulous Aunt Sue, episode 38. Of course, we have had many, many girl campers on the show, and each of their stories is a different journey, so you can meet some of our girl campers. So head on over and follow that link, it's at girlcamper.com, but it's going to be in the blog uh, post associated with this um, particular podcast. So I'm glad you asked that question, Ginny. And I'm going to move right on now to our next question, which comes from my friend, Jean Gaffney. How can you bake in your camper if you don't have an oven? <laughs> well, I, I, I have to laugh. I laughed. I, I just really laughed out loud when I when I read this question because Jean's a Southern girl and I think Jean likes her biscuits. <laughs> so Southern women bake. I, 
people in New Jersey don't bake. Southern women, they have cakes and pies and biscuits. So I thought this was so cute. So it's going to depend on whether or not you have electric hookups at your site and really just how badly you want biscuits. So if you do have hookups, then you can just get a toaster oven and use it inside your RV or you can even cook outside. You can put a little toaster oven on a table outside your camper and plug it in out there. Now, if you don't have hookups, you can get the Camp Chef, which is a really nice piece of equipment. And this is an incredible um, oven with two burners on top for cooking. And it'll heat up to 400 degrees. It has two racks in it. But let me tell you something, this thing runs on propane, so it doesn't matter if you have hookups. It's really a beautiful piece of equipment. It can run on one of those one pound propane tanks that you hook up to your Coleman stove, or you can hook it up to the big 20 pound tank that's in front of your trailer. So it's heavy though, it weighs 35 pounds. I have seen this many, many times in people's camp kitchens, and it seems like a piece of equipment that a lot of tent campers and those with the vintage trailers really, really love. I've been intrigued by it. I don't own one, but I have been intrigued by it for a long time. It's a pretty sharp looking piece of equipment. So another option is to go the old fashioned route and break out the Coleman stovetop oven. If you've ever seen these, it's a lightweight aluminum collapsible portable oven and it has one rack that sits in the middle of it and you place this on top of your Coleman two burner stove. I had one of these for years when I owned my vintage camper. I really bought it for nostalgic purposes, but I can tell you that it works great if you have the time and patience. It takes a good 15 minutes on top of the stove to heat this thing up to 350 degrees. The thermometer is right on the door of this thing. The oven rack that goes in it is not very secure and you're probably going to have to put a little nail or pin on either side of it to keep it from slipping around. It takes a little while to heat up and when you are cooking food in this, you really have to keep an eye on it. This is not something where you put your biscuits in it and walk away. You gotta, you gotta kind of stand by and keep a close eye on it. I've also seen people use this one on the campfire. So if you're a biscuit loving southerner, those are some of your options. <laughs> okay, I have a question here and it's from Elizabeth. Do most girl campers travel solo? So Elizabeth, this is going to depend on what your definition of solo is. Often when people are starting out, they do a lot of trips with other girl campers. And I really think this is a great starting point because when you arrive at the campground, there are going to be other women there to help you with the unhitching and the backing in and the things that you're just learning. And it's nice to have that helping hand. I was reminded a few weeks ago when I was at a camp out that everyone's starting point is different. So I met these two wonderful women who were on their very first girl camper trip. They were staying in a rented RV at the campground, so they didn't have to tow it there. So it was already parked on the site. They had come from their home, which was two and a half hours away in the same state. They lived in South Jersey and they came up to North Jersey. And they told me with great happiness about their trip and how excited they were that they had done it. And I was thinking to myself, they drove here without a trailer in their own state. 
But then I had to stop and think about it for a minute and remember back to my old days when I would get out of that 50 mile of circle of highway that you're familiar with. You know, uh, Philadelphia Airport is an hour south of me. Newark Airport is an hour north of me. When I'm on any part of those highways, I feel like I'm in my own neighborhood, right? When I would get off of those and I'm like, ooh, I, I never took this road before, I would feel anxiety start to take over me. So I sat there and I thought, boy, I've come a long way myself because I don't even think about it. But this was their very first trip and that's where they were. And I want to honor that because it really took some courage. They were, they, neither of them had ever driven that far from home without their spouse in the car. So I thought that was pretty cool that these two girlfriends set out with their map and their GPS and they got themselves there and they were so happy about it. For the first number of years that I was girl camping, my best friend, my BFF, she's not really a BFF, best friend forever, I guess BFF stands for. I always call her BBF because she's the best, best friend. My best, best friend, Carol, went on every single trip with me. And if not her, someone else, but usually Carol. And I was never on the highway alone. I was always in a caravan because even if Carol took her own camper, she was right behind me or right in front of me. We never got separated. And then once I got where I was going, there were lots of other girl campers there too. And it was just fun. Everybody's pulling up and beeping and honking and then helping each other get set up and doing trailer tours. And it's really, really so much fun. A few years ago, though, I just decided to go camping by myself to use that time as kind of a retreat. I suddenly just had this urge to not camp with friends, to not visit. I wanted to use my camper and go away and use it for respite. I wanted to rest. I wanted to read. I wanted to spend time writing. And so I started local. And I just camped a few weekends close to my own home in New Jersey. And I can remember the very first time I was in a campground all by myself where I didn't know anybody. And I was just, every bump in the night was bothering me. And now it doesn't bother me at all. I don't hesitate now to go across the country by myself. I did five weeks in Texas last year and I spent 90% of that time by myself. I loved it. It's all a personal choice though and it's perfectly okay to build up to that dream of solo travel if that's what you wanna do. And if you're not completely comfortable with it at first, there's safety and confidence when you're traveling in a pack and it's a great way to get your sea legs. So as we always say here, Whatever you want, there's no wrong way to camp like a girl, but please don't feel like somehow you're not doing it right if you're afraid to get out there all by yourself. Work up to it. Okay, I have a question from Diana. Is this true? Her last name is Camper? Diana Camper, K-A-M-P-E-R. How did I not notice that when I was copying these questions? Okay, Diana wants to know, um, how do I run my generator to charge my battery when I am dry camping? Okay, so you should have a monitor that tells you how much of a charge is left on your battery inside your camper. So it's going to depend on um, what you're running and how much you're being supplemented by solar, if at all. So every unit is going to be different. My Max has a solar panel on the roof, so as my battery drains, it gets recharged during the day. But if you didn't have solar, then you wanna really pay attention to how much power you are using 
and how much is left in your battery. If you have a built-in generator, like the ones that come in motorhomes, there's actually just a switch there that allows you to turn that generator on. You don't have to, you don't have to put it in drive and go anywhere with it. It turns it on. So the generator is being charged by running the motor on the motorhome. In the Class C that we rented last spring, we were told that it takes one gallon of gas to run the generator for one hour. So that's something you want to be cognizant of too. Since we were driving ours every day, it was charging while we drove. We only turned ours on once when we were parked in my uh, sister's driveway for 24 hours and we really needed to get the refrigerator cooled down. So if you're carrying a portable generator with you, if you're in a travel trailer and not a motorhome, and you're carrying a portable generator with you for use while you're boondocking, then you're going to need to comply with the regulations at the campground you're at. If you're boondocking on BLM land, you just need to be courteous of any people that might be around you. Somebody posted on the um Facebook page over the weekend that they were beach camping BLM land but they were um, at a beach and there was just a person who was running their generator like round the clock and it's it's so annoying it happened to us in uh, Rocky Mountain National Park the people across from us just they just ran their generator and and I finally actually went down to the ranger because it was past quiet hours and I asked him to turn it off it was so annoying but anyway so be courteous of the people around you Okay, here is a question from Susan Turner. I'm looking for a camper now. Is it best to buy from a dealer or individual seller? I'm looking for a cute glamper. So I believe myself that there are more reasons to buy from a dealer than there are to buy from a private buyer. Um, a private seller, I should say. Some of the advantages of buying um, from a reputable dealer are that they have a service department. So if somebody comes in, I'm assuming, you, I, I don't know, maybe she's not talking about a used trailer, but since she was talking about individual seller, I'm assuming she meant used. So when someone trades in an RV at a reputable RV dealership, they're not going to put that thing back out on the showroom floor or out in the lot until their service department has gone over that with a fine-tooth comb. They're not going to take it as a trade-in until they make sure that there's no big things wrong with it. So it's going to go through a thorough inspection. If they find things that are wrong with it, they're going to repair it before it goes out on the floor there. If you're buying new from a dealership, they do like a 90-point inspection when they get the campers from the RV manufacturers. So there is a process they go through because they want to make sure that what they bought and purchased, because when an RV dealership has a, an RV on their lot, it's paid for. They own it. They are carrying a bank loan on that. The manufacturer has been paid for that. It is theirs. So they want to make sure when that unit comes in, like within 48 hours, they want to have a one of their service people go through that thing with a fine-tooth comb. So if you're buying a used RV from a reputable dealer too, usually you can get some kind of short-term warranty from the dealer that you're not going to get from a private seller. So it may only be 30, 60, or 90 days, and sometimes that is negotiable. But what happens with that is if you have a 30-day warranty on a used RV, then 
you can get out in it and camp right away. So when you're using it in that first 30 days, anything that's going to go wrong, you're probably going to know. And you can get back to that RV dealership and get that thing repaired. Most brand new RVs come with a one-year warranty, and some even come with a two-year, and you would never get anything like that from a private seller. So the other thing is that dealerships, they have a reputation to uphold, and they want you as a repeat customer. So if anything goes wrong, you can return it to them. It's in their best interest to make you happy. This is an age in which everybody can get online and leave a negative review if they didn't make good on what they promised. So if you decide to go with a used RV, you should definitely get an RV inspection from a certified RV inspector. And I want to make a point about this right now. Even if you bought it used at an RV dealership and felt that you really wanted to have a secondary RV inspection, if you were working with a dealership who didn't want you to do that, you should walk away. So a lot of people who will buy at an RV dealership also get their own private inspector to come in. I'm going to put the link um, for the home inspection um, companies to, so you can uh, find out where one is. That is going to cost you three to four hundred dollars, but it's possibly going to save you thousands inspectors know how to look for things that cannot be seen by the naked eye they also check all the electrical plumbing heating and air conditioning systems as well as the structure of the rv and what i mean by that is they're going to go underneath that rv and they're going to look at the frame of it and everything that might be a concern that are things that we we wouldn't even know. They do this every day. They know where the failure points are and they're going to go in looking for that. So a short story here is that our girl camper friend, Ginny McKinney, just bought um, what looked on the surface to be a good used trailer. She paid $5,000 for an RV that was over 10 years old, but in very, very good condition. At least that's what it looked like. So she knew that the front window had leaked, but the owner told her that he had repaired it and it was no longer leaking. She saw water marks, but she didn't see anything wet or anything that looked damaged inside. All she saw was a water mark. So because it was in pristine condition on the surface, the people had taken really good care of it. She didn't get an inspection with it. So when she got it home and the first really hard ca uh, rain came, she saw that the window was still leaking. So she let it dry and she applied caulk and that seemed to do the trick. She took it to Ohio where we were all camping for what a hoot in the spring and we all got to tour it and indeed it looked like it was in beautiful shape. When she drove it to Colorado two weeks ago, though, she hit some turbulent roads with a lot of construction and bumps, and that's where the problems began to show up. So the trailer was really rattling, and when she got to her destination, she noticed that the diamond plate that was in front was sinking. It was crushing and caving in on top of the tongue jack. So that diamond plate was actually dented when she got where she was going. So some kind of support that was under that trailer, and it was that front window that had leaked. So under the duress of those rough roads, 
maybe that wood under there was rotted because of that window leaking for years. It didn't look like anything on the inside or outside, but she knew that it was no longer safe to tow and she didn't want to put any more money into a trailer that was that old. So she did the right thing and she listed it for sale uh, locally in Colorado because she couldn't bring it back. And she listed it as a backyard office, a guest house, a she shed, a kid's playhouse. She let every potential buyer know exactly what had happened. So she sold it in Colorado. She had 30 people who wanted to buy it. She sold it in Colorado for $2,750 after having just bought it three months earlier for $5,000 and she cut her losses right there. So I was so happy that she found a buyer that she felt um, could use it in his yard and he felt like he might be able to do the work himself but he was completely aware of the work that needed to be done. So she lost $2,250 on it. And the point here is, and I'm telling you this because Ginny has posted this story all over as a warning, you know, a buyer beware. Ginny, like, is very upfront about this mistake that she made. The point is that an RV inspector, they have moisture detectors and they can read moisture behind those walls and they might have found something. They might have detected that moisture and surmised that if there was water leaking there, there has got to be damage. So a few little tips here. If you're buying new, choose a reputable dealer and check their reviews on social media because people will let you know, like they'll let you know if there was a problem and they'll let you know how they handled a problem. I don't think it's a negative thing when someone says, yeah, I had a problem with my trailer. I had to take it back three times, but they got it fixed. Well, good for you. So, so they got it fixed. Research the model that you want and make sure the current owners are happy with their choice. And what I mean by that is, let's just say you want to get uh, a Max, you know, go on the Max website and see what Max owners are saying about it. Whatever model you choose, go on and see what the owners of that trailer are saying about it. Find their Facebook group and join it. Um, make sure you get a warranty if you're buying new. Most of them come with one and usually sometimes two year warranties. If you're buying it used from a private party, make sure you get an RV inspection. Ask for the maintenance records the owners might have. So maybe they took it to the same place over and over and you could actually call that place and say, I wanna go over the maintenance records for this um, RV I'm consider buying. So if there's a chronic problem with it, you're gonna find out about it. Um, find out where they had it serviced and call that place. So same thing here. Um, whether they had it serviced at the RV dealership, but sometimes people have it serviced at a different place. I never take mine to an RV dealership. I don't have one near me. I take it to a trailer repair guy about 10 miles from my house. So I did a podcast episode on tips for buying a used RV, and that episode is linked to this accompanying blog post. So go on there if you have any more questions, because this is just kind of a quick summary of that. More detail on that one. So thank you so much. All right, I'm going to move on to a question we have from Jen Muller. If one needs towing equipment added to their vehicle, seven pin hitch, brake controller, etc., who does that? The camper dealer, the RV dealership, or an auto shop? 
So either one of those people can do that, Jen. Most RV dealerships with service departments can do that. I had a brake controller installed in my own truck. I paid about $100 for the switch itself, and I paid another $100 to have it installed along with a seven-way plug. Mine came with a four-way, and I wanted a seven-way. So for a little over $100 um, in labor and $100 for the switch, I had all of that um, put in. I think I said this on last week's show. That is absolutely something you want to have a professional do. Okay, we're going to move on here. This is from Jody Hunt. Jody wants to know, please explain the different parts of the hitching equipment tow package so I can speak intelligently on them. Okay, I can do that, Jody, really quickly. And I want to tell everybody who is listening, I found a great diagram online of all these things, and I'm putting it in the blog post here. But just briefly, a trailer hitch. It's a hitch used for towing a trailer. Sometimes it's called a tow hitch. This is usually the factory installed part. So if you see somebody's bumper and they have a little square there, that is the trailer hitch. Um, they are factory installed, but if you are um, going to, if you're going to use one on a car that doesn't have one, before you do that, please make sure that you're installing it on a vehicle that has enough horsepower and torque to tow it. They actually bolt those things to the frame of the car when they put them on, but uh, most of them come um, factory ready. Okay, the receiver tube. That's the little square thing I told you about, and that is attached to the trailer hitch, and it is what is going to receive the ball mount that the trailer will be attached to. The ball mount is a shank that is inserted into that hitch receiver tube and it is held in place with a hitch pin or a hitch lock so that it can't be stolen because steel is heavy and people steal them and they, they take them to places to be melted down. So this has a platform in its design and that's the place where the ball is going to be mounted to. Balls and ball mounts come in varying sizes so the ball size is going to depend on what your RV requires. Ball mounts generally come with a hole in the shank to accommodate different size balls, but some of them come fixed as one solid piece of steel. But usually you can switch these out. There's a really tight nut underneath and you can get those off and change out the size balls. So the ball itself is that's what is going to be fastened to the shank of the ball mount and it is what the RV is gonna sit on in order to connect the two vehicles. So the ball design allows the trailer to pivot while turning corners and backing in. So you've got to make 45 degree turns and this allows it to rock around on that. It also creates flexibility when you're going over bumps. As I said, these come in different sizes too and you're gonna find the right size for your RV by looking on top of the RV's coupler. So let me tell you what the coupler is. This is the part on the front end of your trailer where the two metal framing pieces meet at the top. The, it's a V, you know, so where that V comes together there, that forms the connecting piece that is going to fasten your RV to your tow vehicle. It's designed to latch onto the ball and lock in place, but it also is going to leave enough room for that uh, ball to swivel around inside the coupler. So the size of the coupler must match the size of the ball in order to be secure and tow anything safely. 
the size of the balls are embedded on the top of the coupler. So you buy a trailer and you're like, what size ball am I supposed to put on these things? They are, they are embedded in, they're stamped in to the top of that coupler. But over the years, sometimes they get worn down and sometimes people paint that on their truck or on their uh, trailer. They paint the tongue jack and everything over the years and it can get covered up because they're actually not stamped in there very deeply. So what you need to do then is just get a wire brush and knock off the old paint off the top of that coupler. If it's still really faint, just don't go that old fashioned thing. Get a piece of paper and rub a pencil over it and that lettering is gonna be revealed to you. So a coupler locks down over the ball and it is also secured with a pin and that pin keeps it from unlatching if you went over railroad tracks or a bumpy road. If you put your coupler down and it's on there and you don't have the pin, I always immediately put that pin back in its safe place. If you have lost the pin, don't even drive five feet without one. I keep like three of them in my um, emergency pack. so. Never, never drive without that pin. Okay, one more thing is the safety chain. So safety chains will connect the tow vehicle to the RV and they need to be strong enough to prevent a complete separation of the two vehicles in the very unlikely event of the ball or coupler failing. These chains are welded to the A-frame of the trailer and then they're hooked to the vehicle's trailer hitch, the factory installed part. There's two big hooks there and they hook on there with these big lobster claw things that are super hard to get on and off sometimes. You should always cross the chains when you're connecting so you create a cradle. That way, if the coupler did come apart for whatever reason, it would fall into this little Bas basically basket that is created by the cross chains and it would hold it and keep it from scraping on the ground. So another thing about chains I want everybody to know is 42 states require chains on anything that is being towed. Um, a landscape vehicle, a, a boat, um, 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 if you're towing uh, ATVs or an RV, it's not really an option. 42 states require, you should just have it because if you drive through a state, that does require it and your state does it, you can still get pulled over, so just get them. Okay, one more thing is the trailer wiring and this is often referred to as the trailer wiring harness. It's the wiring system that connects the tow vehicle's electrical systems to the RVs. So this allows you to synchronize the two so when you hit the brakes on your tow vehicle, it's gonna turn on the brakes on your camper. If you turn on your signals on your car, it's gonna turn on the signals on the camper. So there's a four-way flat plug or a seven-way round plug. The seven-way round plug is something you're gonna have to have if you have trailer brakes. And most trailers that weigh over 1,500 pounds are required to have trailer brakes. So most of us by now need to have that seven-way plug. So I am going to include this fantastic diagram from Curtis Manufacturing. Thank you so much, Curtis. It was really great. Um, I'm including that in the blog post, and I'm also going to um, include a really nice little article they had on all of this. It's good to know these things by name. It makes you look better when you arrive at the RV dealership and you don't say things like, I need one of those thingamajigs. <laughs>
So good luck with your homework, Jody. When you're RV shopping, you're going to be perceived as the informed customer that you are and knowledge is power. Okay, submitted by Lois Wills. If you have a husband who doesn't want to camp or if you have aging parents or a disabled child, what do you do? How have other girl campers worked around this? Well, the short answer is you go without them. So most spouses want their partners to be happy. Um, I have no desire to go to plein air painting workshops with my husband. His hobby is landscape painting, but I do have a deep desire to see him happy and enjoying the things that he wants to do. So I don't have a desire to stop him either. So um, in fact, I often give my husband workshops for um, presents because I'm secretly planning a simultaneous camping trip while he is doing his workshops. So this makes him feel like he's not being abandoned. And so hopefully, you know, you're married to someone who gets it, you know. The thing about um, taking care of aging parents and disabled children is actually a little harder. Um, your choices could be a little limited when you're in that position, but there are a few things that you could do. If your parents or disabled children are mobile, you can take them with you and rent a cabin at a campground. It may be a better choice for you because it's just a little less um, unstable, like getting in and out of a camper for someone who is disabled or aging is not that easy. Uh, renting a cabin at a campground might be a better choice. And I think it makes everybody feel better when you break out of your usual routine and hopefully they would enjoy that change. Um, if that's not possible, but you have relatives or people you trust that can give you access to respite care, take advantage of that opportunity and get out and go camping. Because if you are in that position of being the provider, you really, really do need that break. Now, one of the things that came to my mind when I was reading this question is, I saw several posts from girl campers who talked about um, full-timing with adult disabled children. So, I would really want to encourage you, Lois, to put that question on the Girl Camper Facebook page and find out who those people are and what resources and how it's working out. And I mean, I, I would love to do a podcast episode on that, you know, traveling with um, adult disabled children or, or with aging parents. And it's, it's really a good topic. So um, I hope that helps you a little. Okay, I have another question here, and it's from Dana, and she wants to know, what would you say is the longest a camper could be and still be able to camp most anywhere? I have heard 24 to 27 feet. We don't want to make a mistake while we're downsizing. Okay, so lengths vary in the national parks, but most of those parks were built way before the upsizing of RVs. The designers of those parks were making them for tent campers. They were never intended for fifth wheels to fit in those slots. So there is a note on the National Parks Gov uh, page that says maximum length for trailers, campers, and motorhomes vary from park to park. The average length permitted is 27 feet, but some parks can accommodate up to 40 feet in length. Some parks may have electrical hookups and dump stations. You should check with your favorite park for their specific maximum lengths and available facilities so that you won't be disappointed when you arrive. So I have attached a, a link to this 
uh, blog post, and it came from Outdoors RV. It's a one sheet on all the national parks, and it tells you the biggest unit each one would allow. I scanned that sheet, and it looks to me, if you had a 27-foot or under, you should be fine. But you can go on and take a look at that list. And that's just the national parks. So, I mean, there is other state parks and things like that where that's going to vary too. Um, okay, I'm going to give one more here from Teresa Corral. How do Southern campers keep cool? <sighs> okay, how do... <laughs> so, I know that you're in Florida, Teresa, and it's very hot and muggy there in the summer in Texas too. And this is something I find so funny about the Texas girls because I love getting to Texas in March and April because those girls are out there camping and sometimes it's just way too cold still in New Jersey in March to be camping so many of those Texas girl campers they just close up shop in the summer they camp in the spring until the weather becomes unbearable and then they spend the summer by their pools until the fall weather kicks in so another option is to camp with hookups so that you always have respite from the heat. I can remember camping in my vintage trailers in the hottest day of summer at a primitive park, not too far from my home, maybe two hours away in Pennsylvania, no hookups, and just coming home early because it was so hot, so muggy, so miserable. I'm like, this is no longer fun for me. So if you're a person who doesn't mind the heat and you are boondocking, you can do some of the tricks that boondockers employ. Our friend Ginny McKinney just made that cross-country trip from um, the east to Colorado, and she was boondocking at night en route to Colorado, and she didn't have any hookups, but she had a gallon jug of frozen water in her cooler, and she attached that to a battery-operated little fan, a small one, you know, put your hands together in like a small little battery-operated fan. She strapped it on top of the frozen ice with a bungee cord, and she blew it directly on her. <laughs> so this is an old camping trip. The ambient air is still hot, but you are personally cooler and just at least cool enough to be able to fall asleep. The last option is to camp in cool places. So our friend Sandy was just camping in my driveway on and off for the last two uh, weeks, but the mugginess of New Jersey got to her and she headed to upstate New York where she is texting me to tell me the temperatures are in the 60s at night. So perfect camping weather. So I would say, Teresa, that you've got to do what the Texas girls do and just don't camp in the... Um, the heat of the summer or head north where it's nice and cool so that is our show for today and you girls have asked so many great questions i love seeing everyone arm themselves with so much information before they make purchasing decisions or get behind the wheel it's really great to see everybody on this learning curve I want to thank all of you for sending in our questions. We do have a part three, but I'm going to save it for September or October because there were so many good questions. I just really couldn't get to them all. So I want to thank all of our sponsors, including Liberty Outdoors, who is the maker of that fantastic Max trailer that I am enjoying so much this summer. I also want to thank our girl camper friendly RV dealerships, including Setzer's World of Camping in Huntington, West Virginia, General RV with 13 locations around the country, and our friends at Bankston Motorhomes with five locations, three in Alabama, Huntsville, Albertsville, and Florence, Alabama, as well as two locations in Tennessee, Nashville, and Ardmore. 
They are a number one best in business award winner that's been helping families make their RV travel dreams come true from the 1970s. So whether you're looking for a motorhome, a fifth wheel, a travel trailer, Bankston's has something for you. And Bankston's carries so many of our girl camper favorites. Some of our top five picks from um, shows over the years, including that Winnebago Travato, which is just a trailer, uh, an um, Class B that I absolutely love. They carry that Vintage Cruiser by Gulfstream, the R-Pod, a girl camper favorite. And of course, they sell the Max as well. There's literally something there for everyone. You can virtual shop at bankstonmotorhomes.com or you can visit one of their five locations. There's a link in the show notes and you could go to the front page of girlcamper.com and just click over and go visit them. Also want to thank my friends at Camco Manufacturing. I, I am loving my pink carrot hook. So that's a wrap for this week, everybody. Have a great week, everyone, and happy trails.